0: Every week we get bizarre updates about the latest manoeuvres in the culture war. The situation has become so bad that the state is now explicitly anti-trans on a level of policy and totally beholden to fascist reactionaries. To many liberals this was a shock, because we always see ourselves as America's progressive cousins, where a benign liberal technocracy would legislate the LGBT movement's ideals into reality. This hasn't happened. The counter-campaign has totally outmanoeuvred us, and the reformist option isn't really open anymore. Many of us had seen this as a uniquely British phenomenon, that Turf Island was so isolated that it could be considered a distant nightmare.
1: However, deep down, we all knew, you all knew, that it could happen there too. After all, the American right in the age of QAnon, Pizzagate, Trump, Proud Boys and triumphalist dominionism could always be counted on to pick up any weapon it could find for fighting the class war. In 2016, the radical anarchist collective CrimeThink published an article immediately after Trump's election. It began with the following words. We were right about the direction things are heading, but wrong about the time frame. We thought Clinton would win the election and would then be discredited by news scandals and the challenges of preserving an increasingly unpopular status quo, producing a reactionary surge like the one that recently toppled Dilma in Brazil. Instead, the scandal broke before the election, with the announcement of further FBI inquiries into emails associated with Clinton. And, as with the Brexit vote, everyone underestimated just how desperate and reactionary the general public has become. At least, the ones who still identify with the ruling order enough to vote at all. It's later than you think.
0: If you're listening to this, you know how true that was. And you probably know that we are now at the point where trans liberation and anti-fascism have to advance hand in hand. In 2016, the hour was later than you thought. And in the last five years, the neoliberal world, and all of its assumptions have been totally uprooted via imploding institutions, plagues, a collapsing climate, and vast international waves of street battles. Many of these things were seemingly unpredictable, but if researching this has taught us anything, it's that while you can never reliably predict a specific incident, sooner or later the trend begins to live in its own right, walking, talking, and killing in front of you. The patterns are becoming ever more observable and predictable, and are about to make a leap to becoming very lethal, just as you all saw throughout the Trump administration. In this case, and at this juncture, you have another choice to make about how late you want to act to stop this.
1: Welcome to Blood and Turf. I'm E. And I'm M. We've recorded this episode specifically for our American audience. You probably sort of know this already, but you're all about to get totally fucked and outmaneuvered, just like we were. Think of this situation as a mixture between how Bernie got rat fucked and a campaign of atomwaffen style terrorist attacks. We know that US anti-fascists, both those who are trans and their is allies, are well versed in many aspects of these kind of fights, but there's a wave coming and you need to prepare. We're hoping that by reporting from the absolute gore fest that is the UK cultural battlefield, we can explain how we lost this phase of the struggle so that you can be forewarned and thus forearmed.
0: We'll be covering a few of the areas that explain how badly things went down in Britain. Legislature, media, healthcare, reactionary convergences from the right and the left, and our theory of their strategic institutional synthesis. We will also be talking about the strategies we believe can be used to push back and eventually defeat this tide. We'll start with Section 1,
1: Legislative Threats and the Media. Transphobes use a number of tactics to influence the media and high-level political centres of power. In the UK, this has been going on for years, as anyone familiar with The Times and The Guardian's antics will know. It's really important to understand this phenomenon because it's a key tool for the transphobic movement. As Harry Josephine Giles summarises, anti-trans organising holds power through party politics, its own social movements and the media. We should think about anti-trans politics as primarily conservative. It uses feminist rhetoric that has only weak roots in feminism.
0: In the UK context, as we covered in other episodes, there seems to be this emergent strategy of directly influencing legislators, um, such as members of the Houses of Lords or or MPs, which are the two legislative chambers in the UK, um, and also kind of combining that with really pervasive influence amongst major institutions in the world of like print and broadcast media. Uh, Obviously the classic that everyone knows about is the Guardian, but actually in the UK, one of the more influential ones was actually the Times. These are big, big newspapers and they really define terms for kind of like mainstream liberal centrist debate on this issue.
1: Yeah, one of the things that's really worth pointing out in the UK specifically, we do essentially have a monopoly on the media. Rupert Murdoch's empire essentially has a monopoly on the media. So the media in the UK really does control the political scene far more uh directly i guess than in the u.s as we mentioned with like the bernie rat fucking uh jeremy corbyn and now the current leader of the labor party absolutely their, their 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 public opinion rises and falls with whatever hit piece is is published in the media that week and that extends to trans people the times specifically is is notable for having had like an anti-trans article basically every day in 2020 and amongst that backdrop if you know if if transphobes can get that sort of media foothold, it translates into direct political power faster than you would think and in a way that's much less clearly observable and counterable. Um, It seems to fade into white noise and then suddenly uh, the state sits up and takes notice, by which point it's too late. It's
0: relatively unlikely that, for example, the New York Times would be able to suddenly fall to this kind of mentality. There were certain dynamics that went into making UK media institutions this way. And we've gone into that in previous episodes, particularly our two-parter about institutions, which I would recommend people go back and listen to if they, if they care to. In some ways, Americans are a little bit insulated from this specific dynamic suddenly erupting, but you are going to see it in some form. It may not be as dominant, but it will happen. Um, you will see columnists. You'll see people move from guest spots on shows like Tucker Carlson to guest spots on slightly more, uh, shall we say, palatable things. Think, think, think—kind of like the kind of person like Glenn Greenwald, who's um, you know a controversial figure, a bit generally viewed as a bit of a crank, and who isn't trusted by centrists. If that guy talking can drag more and more people who are general centrist commentators in the in the debate into talking about this kind of issue in a hyper reactionary way then it means that they can expand the field of play to include anybody they want and they can just drag in more and more talking heads. It's about creating white noise and dominance in the media landscape and then translating that into a stranglehold on intellectual life.
1: As Harry Josephine Giles um says the uh the use of feminist rhetoric even though um like like she says it only has weak roots in feminism is the primary difference between transphobic reactionaries and other forms of reactionaries because that's the best way that they can gain these footholds is by having you know feminist concerns about any particular issue which to your average person especially if they're using kind of like feminist theory and throwing a bunch of stats at people and using things like um obfuscatory terms uh it's 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 been quite successful in Britain, and I and I think that's one of the things that they will try in the US too. One
0: thing that I think about quite a lot when it comes to right wing um, misappropriation of feminist rhetoric and w- could easily be very very successful in the US is what happened in Britain with the like the grooming gangs thing. So in 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 here here in the UK there is this like town it's called Rochester and there was a major scandal with um, child sexual exploitation, and the far right really jumped on this because several of the perpetrators were like non-white people and were and were muslims. So they managed to basically jump on this this general concept of there being muslim grooming gangs, which is partially where that whole meme comes from. You've probably heard it before. Now, this also dovetailed in with a with like the rise of like modern online far-right grifters. Several of them in the UK are women, obviously. It's, you know, it's not an entirely male movement. And although those women would generally say, oh, I'm not a feminist, I'm not a man-hater, blah, 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 as a standard reactionary piece of rhetoric, they would also be the kind of person who would love to talk about grooming gangs in a sort of, I'm here to stand up for little girls type of way. This is going to be one of the primary ways in which they kind of push forward transphobia in the US context. The most obvious, specific avenue would be in relation to QAnon, in relation to like child sexual exploitation and in relation to the kinds of stunts that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene are pulling. What you've got to understand is that there's this, there's this collaboration between like the legislative level and like the grassroots and people like Marjorie Taylor Greene act as sort of test probe appendages for this larger movement, which has this sort of decentralized brain. And it makes these, it makes these kind of like unconscious decisions and creates these figureheads And sometimes the figureheads will get the sequence of actions right. And they'll be able to essentially trick people into buying the the reactionary narrative. It doesn't matter if what Marjorie Taylor Greene does tomorrow completely humiliates her and destroys her political career because ultimately she's expendable. She's an experiment. And after her, there will come another more sophisticated experiment. After Trump, there will be another better fascist. After Marjorie Taylor Greene, there will be another better QAnon Congresswoman.
1: If you look at people like Milo Yiannopoulos and Richard Spencer, um, they're both spent now, uh, but they achieve their aims. Um, in 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 Britain, uh, going back to the um, kind of fascist uh, rhetoric around children, which again we've also covered in our episode about Little Timmy, um, the, the the biggest. The biggest failure for trans people happened recently in the uk uh, which is that uh healthcare for under 18s has now been uh, entirely outlawed for trans children they can't access any gender-based healthcare and in, in a great deal that was that was greatly influenced by these sort of grassroots cranks constantly bleating about safeguarding and constantly spreading mistruths around um, health, healthcare for under-18s generally um, because uh, things like HRT, puberty blockers um, are already prescribed to cis children generally uh, in, in most countries in the world. Um, and, and and that led to this extremely upsetting and shocking interference from the state directly into the lives of uh, trans youth because of these convergences.
0: In fact, this has already begun to turn up in the US context. Just a few days before recording this episode, the the state legislature of Alabama uh, voted on a bill to restrict medical operations for trans youth. Um, It's now a felony to do certain forms of medical treatment for trans people in Alabama. um, And that is essentially what the, what our side of the Atlantic, the, like the transphobes over here would absolutely love to do that sort of thing. They would love to essentially scream their heads off about like pedo and then basically illegalize being trans in public. And they're well on their way to doing that. They're now engaging in like probing attacks in the US. Which is really what you've got to be careful for. You've got to look uh, simultaneously at the level of the grassroots, at the level of like municipal legislature, and at the level of national, like national stage stuff with major Congress, like Congress figures, uh, senators, possibly even people in the Biden administration, if they get sufficiently brainwormed in a short period of time.
1: Yeah, in particular, the grassroots side of the transphobic movement has often opted for using their existing ties in organizations. Um, so over here, like trade unions or media bodies to get their message into briefings with MPs. Uh, and again, over here, this has now become so advanced that Graham Linehan, uh, the bile spewing grifter of the Brit turfs, you know, he was he, he's not a politician. Uh, he, he just wrote some sitcoms uh, is now testifying before the British Parliament on free speech. So, What starts with one-on-one discussions between MPs and reactionary activists in their constituencies can quickly explode onto the national stage. In the UK, this method uh, was used by the right-wing press and the far-right, as I'm said, to create a racist mythos of British schoolgirls being predated upon by roaming Muslim grooming gangs. And that narrative has now been effectively broadened into use for transphobic narratives, anti-black narratives, and general anti-left campaigns. So this is essentially the playbook for transphobic political actors attempting to game legislators and key influencers, and uh, we've kind of s- sort of mapped how we think it will happen at the various levels
0: so we've you know bearing in mind that the like the legal and political systems work totally differently in the US and the UK and there's like federalism versus parliamentarism means that our government structures are completely different the broad strategy is roughly the same what you'll get is you'll get this combination of like um, local regional and then national level campaigns um, with like varying degrees of extremity and sophistication. So on the municipal level, what you're basically probably going to be looking at is kind of another reiteration of 1950s style, red scare, hyper-localist, small town conservatism. Um, You'll see the kinds of tactics that turned up in like the McCarthy era, with people really trying to control what kind of You're essentially looking at kind of like arguments over what kind of books are allowed in your schools, except now it's going to be arguments about like what kind of genders are allowed in your schools. So it'll be things like forcibly excluding trans children from schools in certain states if they think they can get away with it, you know, bathrooms and sports. You know, you already all know this stuff. And America has a long history of doing this in various different iterations, including in the civil rights movement and the increasing carceralization of the school system in general. Um, it's even plausible that they'll take some like rather unusual tax, like attempting to like weasel in rhetoric about uh, trans like trans children being so disturbed that they might be a school shooting risk is one thing that I sort of spitball imagined that a particularly like creepy and manipulative politician could come out with. There'll certainly be narratives about like self-harming and uh, safeguarding that will crop up. In the UK... We sometimes see this with relation to this government policy called PREVENT, which is an anti-radicalization program famed for simultaneously being completely useless and being extremely racist and oppressive. It's often used to like basically harass brown kids, but its focus is now widened to include any teenager who gets a little bit too political in the classroom. Um, Anti-trans right-wingers will basically just concern troll in order to form a kind of Neo McCarthyist position. And they'll use the various bits of wreckage of the like the Trump period attempts to do this, to create this coalition. They've already got a lot of resources set up for this.
1: So again, on the hyper-local kind of level, um, in the UK, turfs often try and intimidate people and businesses into following like a misinterpretation of our Equality Act, which is basically our national legal norms around what sex and gender are. Um, so for instance, convincing a business that trans people can't use appropriately gendered services. Uh, this also applies to things like pools or any kind of sport or recreation facility where families and children are. Um, and also, kind of, will probably in America go along the lines uh, similarly to all of that right-wing media debacle around gay wedding cakes um, and things like that.
0: The whole purpose of this is basically to simultaneously exclude trans trans people and the legitimacy of trans lives from uh, like civic life and their general local communities. But it'll also apply on the economic level. You'll get things uh, like related to the healthcare debate, for example. So. It did occur to us that right now the argument over healthcare in the U.S. is, and there's nothing the Liberals can do about this. It is openly uh, an aspect of class warfare. However, it is plausible that by linking this to things like uh, like gender issues and and, gen- and like gendered healthcare and trans healthcare, uh, the Liberal kind of centrist bloc that doesn't really want to do anything on healthcare could sort of put things on a detour and turn it into a culture war instead of a class war. So if you were to get into a situation where the Biden administration uh, is simultaneously pressed in relation to coming up with a progressive trans policy and also clamping down on all of these weirdos in the schools that might do something to your kids, whilst it's also facing pressure in relation to healthcare, then you could potentially see some really weird outcomes on the local and the national level. It's even conceivable that because of, like, the Pelosi Democrats' tendency towards just persuading themselves to come up with insane, like, means-tested systems, that a vulnerability could crop up where they essentially apply some kind of bizarre algorithmic gender phrenology to decide whether or not you get health insurance as some kind of sop to the right wing. It's already pretty bad in terms of giving health insurance to trans people. And I would not put it past the Democrats to, if they were persuaded to take a transphobic attack, come up with some kind of way to pass this off as a progressive reform.
1: Yeah, as a as a trans person who is very interested in healthcare um, generally uh, and who does a lot of research, one of the things that I've noticed if you uh, compare the U.S. and the U.K. systems um, is that obviously we have technically nationalised healthcare, although it's it's becoming increasingly privatised, especially in sectors like gender healthcare and um, disability and things like that. Uh, but the big difference, as I see it, is that over here our our trans healthcare is com- is controlled by the state. So we already have gender phrenology in the form of our GICs. Um, the big issue is that in the US, and I, I, I may not understand the whole story, people are able to um, fill a patchwork of um, you know, paying for healthcare out of pocket, uh, gaming insurance systems, uh, and um, dealing with places like Planned Parenthood. Now, of course, Planned Parenthood, because they uh, provide general reproductive healthcare and sexual healthcare, uh, are very much uh, always at risk from the right. And so, the 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 danger of kind of left lib sort of. Um, uh, insertion into the trans healthcare debate uh, would be that to leave Planned Parenthood and, you know, it's, its more radical counterparts completely vulnerable to this right-wing fuckery, even if it doesn't actively, you know, erode the current systems first. Going into the state level, um, one thing that I can definitely see happening is uh, ballot initiatives. So using the crankiest wing of the Republican state legislators, the QLOP, the Trump populist wave, will be the main injection sites here. So look to the previous successes of counter-organising during the Trump administration for tactics to use now. Obviously, there is no trans solidarity without sex worker solidarity. And so I would look to the sex worker movement movements to see how they counter these sort of ballot initiatives and um, proposals, because they do great work and have had some successes.
0: One thing that is notable is that when the DSA took a turn towards a slightly more electoralist tack over the last kind of three or four years, a lot of that focus was on ballot initiatives. So there is already a fairly hefty, like mainstream far left section that has a little bit of organisational experience in this regard. And I would I would hope that some kind of coalition of solidarity could be struck up in that area. Um, We live in
1: hope. mm.
0: See, we, we don't have the luxuries of functional organizations over here, so this is all hypothetical to us. Anyway, we mentioned Marjorie Taylor Green earlier, and Marjorie Taylor Greene is a really important case study because basically she's brilliant at making relatively useless liberal commentators and, and politicians fall into really basic traps. So because her fundamental political modus operandi is to be a highly disruptive weirdo, she's... Sort of like a, a disempowered version of a UK politician who's called Joanna Cherry. Now, Joanna Cherry is a is a Scottish regional politician. She's extremely powerful in uh, one of the regional parties called the Scottish Nationalist Party, and she's one of the main one of the main uh, salespeople of the transphobia brand in the UK. Uh, and she's done this through a combination of kind of like outrage peddling. Um, being very, very aggressive in terms of like threatening lawsuits and like getting unhinged columns in various different national papers. Um, Now she's significantly more lucid than Marjorie Taylor Greene, but I think they form, they, they sort of fill similar ecological niches in that they are there to push boundaries and they're there to kind of like disrupt the status quo and inflame these kind of culture war flashpoints. As I said, Marjorie Taylor Greene's great at causing uh, libs to fall into traps. The the classic example, I'm, I think, of this is this recent incident where she got into a social media scuffle with a, with a Democrat congresswoman over the placement of either a, a trans flag or a sign outside Taylor Greene's office that said, believe the science, which was obviously a co-optation of COVID-related messaging. We've talked in previous episodes about how COVID trutherism And generalized hoax slash conspiracy theory mindsets often heavily overlap with transphobia. It's because the fundamental aspect of a lot of transphobic politics is that it's a conspiracy theory. There's many similarities between it, and for example, generalized New World Order conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories about transhumanism, Jews, people coming to steal your kids, all of that sort of stuff. And accordingly, it can be just directly downloaded into the psyche of a lot of American voters without needing to even install any new software um this means that people like marjorie taylor green if they continue churning out this kind of like viral content believing that they're doing it for the kids and to trigger the libs they can really crystallize this thing into being a proper center of power for them and once they realize that they definitely will marjorie taylor green has clearly already realized this
1: yeah and 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 talking about the uh, marjorie taylor green compared to joanna cherry like Marjorie Green is linked to Q, which is linked to, you know, the January uprising, which was a violent one where people died. That is a big difference between the US and the UK. And I think it's one that's really worth thinking about in terms of political violence. Like, I won't go into endless detail about how transphobes ability to enact political violence in the US and the UK has grown over this past year and, you know, few months alone. But the exterminatory vision of the turfs has become far better realized than anyone in the UK could have imagined. They agitate in favor of conversion therapy, state-organized child abuse via the medical and psychiatric professions, and the end game, like we've said, is total trans-extermination. And this has been aided and abetted by the British government's right-wing popular strategy. Um, this is something the US is obviously also vulnerable to. The big difference is that in the US, you guys have guns. And uh, terrorist attacks and general violence have the capacity to be far, far more directly deadly in the US than, the, than, than, than in the UK, um, whether it's vehicular terrorism or um, more insurrections or, or whatever. The Trans State Watch UK group—I uh, don't know if there's a US equivalent—but if not, I think it would be good for one to uh, exist. Uh, uses a working definition of state violence, which includes interactions with the police, the prison system, the immigration system, and psychiatric detention or sectioning. Um, which I think is a good definition and something to really keep in mind when we're talking about um, grassroots versus um, state-based political violence.
0: So with the mention of the January uprising and the QAnon movement and the various different grassroots elements that sort of feed into this national legislative area of conflict, we're now gonna move on to section two where we talk about like the reactionary convergences between like various different elements of of like the transphobic movement. Um, so as E just mentioned, one thing I, I think is important to bring up in relation to like the difference between the degree of, of real existing political violence in the UK and the US is that at the January uprising, it's now emerged um, that one of the one of the like the, the like the QAnon crowd actually gouged someone's eyes out. Um, now in the UK, we do have political violence at protests. Uh, you know, I've I've seen, you know, fascists throw things at protests that I was in Um we occasionally have people who will attempt to bomb mosques, but it's not—it's obviously not to the degree of violence that it is over in the states. And concurrently, the degree of sophistication of American anti-fascism is much, much greater than the degree of organization or sophistication in the UK, because our anti-fascist movement is really very much on the back foot and has been for about two decades. It's particularly been on the back foot in relation to a sort of reactionary convergence that we've noticed is now emerging in the modern Western fascist movement, uh, which brings us on to section two, which is about that reactionary convergence.
1: Section two, girl baz and other reactionary convergences.
0: Should we explain what girl baz is just for like five seconds? Girl baz is... um, It's girl baz. (laughs) <laughs> Baz is like a it's like a slang term that popped up in like the British kind of like lefty online political sphere uh, and originated on um, a, on a popular podcast and it basically refers to kind of like a lower middle class right-wing guy who really really likes Tommy Robinson um, and you know considers himself part of the true grit working class because he's a small business owner. Uh, and Girl, girl Baz refers to um, some specific people who we ran into in, in our general adventures in relation to UK turfery, who were sort of like doing exactly the same thing, but trying to do like a feminized, like a deliberately aesthetically feminized version of it in order to turn like turfery and transphobia into a grift. These people are part of an increasingly reactionary kind of like coalition that is informally formulating itself in the UK. And this kind of convergence is exactly what you're going to have to watch out for because it's actually quite powerful.
1: Yeah, Girl Baz is specifically in contrast to uh, Girl Boss, which um, obviously Americans will know uh, thanks to uh, Sheryl Sanderberg's lean in feminism. Uh, so you've got kind of liberal grifts, and then you've got the much more, um, you know, uh, Baz ish, uh, b- not plebeian, but, 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 but like pseudo, pseudo working class reactionaries.
0: Think of it as being the equivalent of, of people like Andy Nyo. Various different reactionaries supported the UK ruling, which ended up denying trans youth medical care. And this was in order to, to further their own like eugenicist, anti-intersex, anti-feminist agendas. Um, you know, there was the example of pre-established links between the Heritage Foundation, which American listeners either will be familiar with already or should be, um, and British transphobic groups. And what that meant is that this kind of like upper crust of American reactionary think tanks and Republican policy wonks was given a taste of how tactically fertile anti-trans platforms can be in a populist situation. This will start happening in the US. What they've done is like essentially because the UK is like a shitty little protectorate of America it's been used as a very large focus group. It's like a petri dish for all of the wild policy experiments they want to try next, and for all of the various different reactionary sections of Middle America that they want to target. Anything that they think might fly, you know, just generally to, uh, you know, a waspish American audience, they will take a punt at making it work with Middle Britain because they're fundamentally really quite similar there's a lot of concerns about economic instability they're you know socially very conservative they're vaguely religious but not quite and that means that with transphobia they've hit this potential gold mine for political action Um, The speed of metastasization that we've all seen over the last kind of six months should show anybody paying attention how serious this problem is. This, What I mean, this specific section of the problem, because they are going for a very specific demographic and it's a very politically potent one.
1: If you've seen the successes that the Heritage Foundation had with British turf groups, you know they had all of those successes, and they were and they were flying uh, British uh, reactionaries to America to meet people, making all of these connections. And now they've gathered all of that data, and they have those connections pre-existing, and they can do this on their home on their on their home territory. So of course it's going to be faster. Of course it's going to be more powerful.
0: What this what what this means is that you kind of got this. You've got this convergence of various different figures because the like the general kind of like street protest movement reactionary live stream guys scene has a vast quantity of people in it, and if that that means that it's extremely kind of like complex and diverse. So you've got people like the Q Shaman, and then you've got people like Andy Neo, uh, and and then like Ian Miles Chong, all of these kinds of guys. um Now you know, to, to like the average listener, they're all basically just like right-wing, hyper online weirdos, but it's actually quite a broad coalition and it speaks to a lot of different audiences. So the grassroots side of this is in this kind of like grift scene of individuals like Andy Q and QAnon streamers like the Q Shaman. Um, in the UK, they follow a similar model and we've actually seen people in the UK firsthand um, who are similar individuals to Andy Nyo or wherever, um, who will turn up to the same protests as transphobic cranks? We saw this with the anti-lockdown and the COVID hoax demos. Those were attempts at like populist pushbacks against a government policy, and they were very similar to American like fears about like the liberal big government coming for the kids and like nefarious doctors. Um, these general strands of thought and these general demographics will converge in the U.S. Like you saw the other day, Ian Miles Chong was basically just like totally shitting the bed about a vial of HRT, which, you know, came off the internet and had like an anime girl on the box. That kind of thing is going to be exactly the sort of stuff that they put on their placards in the same way that, for example, like the anti-abortion movement had completely demented stuff on their placards. And you're going to see this at any upcoming like turf demo or transphobe demo in general keep an eye out for what they put on leaflets, like the, the rhetorical content of their posts and like crossovers in, in like patterns of speech and different phrases between how they talk about like dangerous injections and, and like creepy influence and how other kind of cultists and conspiracy theorist movements talk about like, you know, the nefarious doctors, the CDC, the new world order, um, 5G corona, all of that kind of stuff.
1: Ian Miles Chong, like freaking out about the vial of HRT, is very specifically relevant because that was an online supplier. Uh, now, supplying estrogen is not a controlled substance, um, which testosterone is. And it's completely, you know, it's a gray market, but it's, I think, pretty much legal to do and absolutely fine. But trans healthcare, because it has become this cultural issue, You'll probably start to see more stuff like that, where people create outrage around, you know, untested drugs and like, who's sending these things and, you know, safeguarding, safeguarding, safeguarding. And that's how they start making these inroads.
0: Yeah. For example, specifically in relation to like the untested drug safeguarding thing, what would be like an absolutely classic maneuver is if they tied this stuff into the drug war. Exactly which would be bad anyway um all of this stuff is just going to create a whole like right to center spectrum of transphobic political positions that appeal to a wide
1: range of of constituencies accordingly they're gonna um you know start expanding their already existing sets of front groups online communities and figureheads to appeal as much as possible to as wide and varied a coalition as possible they're going to try and tend to get in bed uh with sure bets first, like we've said, with with QAnon, um, fundamentalist anti-abortion movements, uh, including Heritage Foundation, uh, people obsessed with paedophilia, and arguably the reactionary bit of the New Age movement. But like, they will be adapting and expanding into as many markets as possible. Um, so. Uh, you've got kind of like the extant fronts and friendly orgs that we know of, like um, oh, they've all got terrible names. P-R-O-G-D-K, which is um, Parents of Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria Kids, which is a nationwide organization of American parents. And LGB Fight Back, which is like an attempt to co-opt the LGBT movement with revamped classic turf rhetoric.
0: Yeah, LGB Fight Back is clearly kind of like jumping off the bandwagon from the whole... Um... LGB alliance thing, which I'm sure that again, many listeners will be familiar with. Uh, side note PROGDK, I've just seen that in the notes again, and I got reminded of what I thought about when we wrote it down, which is that it looks like an obscure subsection of the Soviet government. Like, that's exactly <laughs> how their acronyms worked.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, it's like, oh no, yeah. sorry, Vasily can't come in. He's been
1: liquidated by Progdk. <laughs> <laughs> um- <laughs> Yeah, a lot of the, especially the stuff that directly takes um, inspiration or is a, a clone of uh, Brit Turfs will just be this like absolutely stupid shit with stupid names that's like clearly run by like seven, seven people. But like, you it'll can have expect- loads of money. Yeah, it'll have loads of money. And at the moment, it's very much astroturf, but you will start, the more exposure they get, the more genuine converts they'll have. And that's where things stop becoming funny and start becoming serious pretty fast. And, like, I think from the U.S., you're going to start seeing these genuine convergences, which I wouldn't class progtica uh, and uh, LGB Fightback as progtica. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, like... That's tricks for kids. But like the more serious stuff I think you're going to see is like anti-abortion stuff, general fundy stuff, family values. I've seen um, from a bunch of um, kind of American reactionaries in a way that you just don't really get so explicitly here. It's not that we're not conservative around the family unit. It's more that like, our government kind of does that economically anyway. Like they they have sort of forced uh, family values uh, through policy. Whereas in America, I've seen people, I've seen rhetoric specifically about people respecting family values, being anti-family values, um, as, as like a rhetorical stick-to-beat yeah, people.
0: It, it's a bit more kind of like Bible thumpery in the US, I guess. Um, exactly. Yeah, as we've, as we've already seen, I expect to see it from like influ- like Instagram influencing like, uh, wine mum, woo cultists, all of that kind of stuff. Um, Facebook groups, as with QAnon, will be a big uh, radicalization site. Um, transphobes, because they tend to be in, in the middle age, although they're not always. Um, yeah, they will, they will use any kind of like, you know, social networking site. It's, you know, this is obvious basic bread and butter stuff. Uh, you know, essentially expect to see all of the kind of the classics come out from the, the post-Gamergate era of online reactionary networking. And just be prepared for it and figure out uh, how to combat that. But yeah, it's worth saying, even though it's obvious. However, there is something which is a little less uh, humorous to talk about. And it's a little bit embarrassing for everybody involved, which is that there is actually a bit of a threat from the potential for like left reactionaries to kind of fuck this up. There's two routes that this can come from. One of them is from kind of like reformist co-option which we sort of talked about earlier in relation to healthcare. Uh, Another one is in relation to like entrepreneurial professionalized liberal activists who do like feel-good protests, Marianne Williamson type people. There's also a concern that you will sort of see a kind of like red-brown thing begin to emerge uh, which would not exactly be unprecedented in the context of American or UK cultural political battles. Um, so I think we'll just start with a brief bit about co-option.
1: Um, one thing I think it's really worth mentioning is, uh, as, as Em said earlier, the UK left has been in in retreat for decades and therefore everyone is much more on the fringe, much more hardened, and and arguably we're, we're much more prone to cranks. We're just less mainstream in general. In America, that's not quite the case, but that, as we've seen with uh, BLM, as we've seen with healthcare, as we've seen with all of the settle down and vote for the Dems kind of shit, you guys are way more vulnerable to co-option by liberals in a way that we just, we really aren't, Um, and so like yeah, you'll get these feel good protest cults, uh, but also you'll get things like representational consumerism. So uh, listeners may have seen there was a massive brouhaha about this fucking trans, uh, I'm doing scare quotes, you can't see them, healthcare app, which was just venture capital shit linked to um, HRC the HRC group. One thing that's really important to keep in mind is that trans liberation by its nature has to be intersectional, it has to be related to houseless advocacy, sex worker advocacy, harm reduction advocacy, um, and to cut off uh, trans liberation f- from these things uh, and coopt it into trans liberalism you are going to start seeing more and more of 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 this kind of thing. So there'll be apps, there'll be um fucking trans branded vitamins, you know, trans branded retreats. And that's something that really needs to be stopped because it, it it's it's it is it is kind of left stagnation and, and like it'll turn to it'll turn to left reactionism very quickly. Um and, and that's what's happened with the with 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 cis gays in 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 the US and the UK.
0: It will also tend to dovetail in with kind of like mainstream democratic uh, attempts to return to legislative promises. It's essentially it's essentially like one wing of the co-optation movement. Um, you know, you'll get lots of symbolic votes in Congress uh, and, you know, people symbolically putting up flags, but you won't get any real changes. Um, the, the kind of like the insider threat aspect of this, the, like the red-brown threat is something I think we should probably touch on. Um, So in the UK, this was totally critical and it completely fucked us Um, like the the UK left was uh, borderline useless in terms of actually practically fighting back against any of the stuff that happened over the last kind of five years or so.
1: Yeah, I remember being in a leftist meeting several years ago um, when this stuff was all rising and Literally being laughed out of the room when I brought up the fact that anti-trans stuff was an anti-fascist concern. Like that's the level to which the left was entirely vulnerable.
0: It has slowly, slowly, marginally improved. I mean, you you will at least get vague rhetorical um, flutters of interest from from left-wing groups, but the amount of left-wing groups in the UK that are actually both ideologically and practically in place to do something about this is actually relatively minimal um you know we could go on at length about the exact state of the of, of the uk-based political scene and the and the anti-fascist scene in, in particular um but we won't uh essentially the point i want to make is that like you've got to watch out otherwise you're going to get a dsa turf caucus so like leftist listeners in big social democrat or democratic socialist style organizations, uh, like larger organizations, like you know, e- even the relatively kind of like disparate and disorganized ones should try and force the issue in terms of actively promoting organizational anti-fascist trans solidarity. Now, the tactical purpose of this is so that you can sort of pull the veil off uh, anybody who is holding like reactionary or trans ambivalent or trans exclusionary views. Because if you can force the organizational issue and you can make policy and you can, then that means that either they will be like cowed into a position of powerlessness or they will kick off about it. And if you kick off about it in, and if they kick off about it in enough organizations, then it means that you'll begin to see where the chips fall and the field will be much, much clearer for you to maneuver in. Um, it is far more beneficial for you to know whether or not you are going to lose the internal struggle within an organization than to not know and leave it in ambiguity in order that you later get completely sucker punched. Uh, like the specific qualitative nature of this issue plus the current political dynamic means that assuming good faith in on the part of people who want to push back against these kinds of policies, like assuming good faith on their part is really unwise and you're just going to have to start shoving reactionaries out of the movement, or you're going to be completely screwed.
1: Yeah, it's like viewing this is like, <clears throat> sorry. Yeah, it's like when you look at uh, kind of like an organization, for example, being a bit weak on the issue of street anti-fascism in, say, uh, 2017, that could have simply been like foolishness or cowardice, cowardice then. Uh, but we've all seen the outcome. Uh, Similarly, if you don't force the issue now, if you don't force organizations to take a specific stance now, All that will happen is that you're going to lose organizational time and energy when you could be using it. And as Em says, you need to know where the chips fall because in the UK, we let this rot spread completely unchecked. And then we had to deal with people who had ascended quite highly in uh, leftist organizations, suddenly turning out to be TERFs. And then we were fighting on both fronts and it just completely fucked us. If you do it now, you can you know, fight the home front first.
0: Yeah, you you've essentially got to dig for victory to use a World War II metaphor. <laughs> um there was a famous World War II slogan to do with growing lots of potatoes in order to not be starved. But seriously, what happened in the UK is that the you know, the left and the anti fascists slept on this issue and as a result, we lost the Labour Party.
1: Yeah, and we didn't just lose the Labour Party, we lost uh we lost everyone who we basically burnt out an entire generation of activists. We had this thing called Momentum, which... Um, we had, we had. It's, it does still exist. <laughs> well, it, it's not going to exist for very much longer. But <laughs> when, when I say we had it, there was a period where hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of genuine leftists were signing up for Momentum, which was a sort of like street wing of the Labour Party under Corbyn. Who basically, was,
0: basically the closest local analogue to the DSA.
1: Yes, but it enjoyed, unlike the DSA, a much closer relationship with the Labour Party, which at this point under Corbyn was proposing kind of like very um, comparatively left, like social democratic style reform. Uh, And it really mobilised people. And it's 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 destruction had even wider implications than electoral politics. So it, it's like we got fucked on every avenue, you know, like street activism, uh, trade union activism, uh, worker activism, uh, local stuff. It just absolutely everything got subsumed into this hole and then destroyed. And this had wider implications for the left generally, but specifically on trans stuff. The Corbyn administration was um, plagued by not rumors, but concerns around the cer- certain members' involvement with uh, TERFs. As we spoke about earlier, um, there was a period in the UK where TERFs were trying their hardest to meet up with spe- specific politicians to get them to listen to their very reasonable concerns uh, about gender fascism. Uh, but in terms of actual quality of life stuff for trans people, Corbyn was going to propose healthcare reform and benefits reform. Um, and that would have been a a great thing for trans people. Uh, rising tide lifts all boats, and all that. Um, so even though people like John McDonnell, who is uh, Jeremy Corbyn's kind of right hand guy, was meeting up with turfs and listening to their concerns, if you look at if 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 you compare the the issues that the that left had with Corbyn in that political landscape to the issues that we have now, we are in a far worse place. But because we didn't approach these things tactically, um, we didn't gain anything. We just lost everything. One of the big differences between the US and the UK, which um, is is good on the US's part, is that people compare Bernie Sanders and, and Corbyn. We did not engage with Corbyn cynically enough at all in the way that um, Americans have kind of engaged with, with Bernie in a more cynical way. Specifically, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, the way in which organizations like the DSA related to Sanders um, Anyway, as a result of that, we essentially put all of our eggs in one basket and then allowed the state to take them from us.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, I've kind of written about this in a, in a general capacity on, on my kind of personal medium page, but my overall strategic analysis of how the UK got suckered d- during the, the height of the Corbyn and momentum periods was is functionally as, as E has just laid out. But one thing that I think is quite notable is that even the reformist wing of the DSA is significantly more, like, openly politically aggressive than momentum is um, because momentum was highly subservient to the Labour project and even the most reformist portion of the DSA is much less subservient to like even the Sanders campaign Um, much though like anarchists and anarchist communists like myself would criticize the DSA for its reformism they don't take their orders from the top in the way that momentum ended up doing. Anyway, the, the long and the short of it is that you're gonna to have to clean house in the let just so that you can make sure because like the consequences of not doing it are genuinely very bad. Um, and you should not be afraid of having these embarrassing, unpleasant arguments with people who you think are comrades. Uh, like if you can have that kind of argument over over the matter of like anti-imperialism, then you can have that, that, kind, of, that kind of argument over the matter of transphobia and you've got to do it, otherwise it will torpedo your policy.
1: Yeah, the reason momentum in the DSA is relevant is that you, I mean, you as an American listeners, are in a better position than we are. So do not waste it. Like, please force these conversations because if they go well, you will be surprised at what comes out of them. The the thing of of forcing these conversations that did, one of the good things that we've had in the UK is that groups that came out on the right side, as it were, After you've done this revitalization by forcing the issue, people are much more likely to be actively in solidarity in a way that they weren't previously. Because if you're in an organization with people who are not actually your comrades, even if they're keeping that to themselves, they're still gonna have a dampening effect on your organizational energy. And once trans people know without any kind of ambiguity that they're welcome somewhere, then they can get to work in a way that just, they were never able to do, for example, with Corbyn's labor. Even though, in hindsight, it would have been better if we had done so.
0: Yeah. I, I, wish, I wish to stress for um, the various different American is- listeners who are not in DSA or who are in other organizations. The reason why we picked that specific example is purely because it's big and it's a relatively like normie section of the far left in the US. Um, you should do this, too, in your local anarchist collectives, in your communist parties, in your base building organizations, mutual aid groups, whatever. Just just do it. Anyway, we move on to section three, a strategy of institutional synthesis. Right, so this section is basically to explain our theory of like the hybrid model. This is our theory of the enemy uh, and what you need to think about when you're designing your strategies. So the transphobic political movement, the operational model in the UK was basically like a hybrid of grassroots zealotry and institutional access, and that was backed up by a reactionary, unifying, but very vague political theory, plus like the boots on the ground that were expressed through like hundreds of headless little cult organisations and front groups, and also, you know, money from evangelicals and conservatives. It's not coordinated at every level, but it is internally unintentionally cooperative like there's an emergent cooperation from this from this chaotic system because there's a unified goal without there being a unified policy and there's a unified pattern of behavior without there being any kind of like training or organization structure it's kind of like an amoeba or a slime mold and it will continue to like evolve in ways that strengthen its methods wherever it can get like political nutrients or power then that'll be an area in which it sees itself as being politically rewarded, and it'll, it'll tack towards that, and it'll begin to develop itself. That's what you're looking at fighting. It's, it's a sophisticated stochastic network that then can become like a Karen Volk republic of like grassroots QAnon cranks, disenfranchised, lower middle class American Trumpists, like hyper-liberal weirdos from like the, the depths of the most brain-wormed echelons of the Democratic Party. Think like Buttigieg mixed with the Terminator and then elite legislators with axes to grind and any kind of frothing dominionist, all these people who failed to like establish their total control over the class system under Trump, but got pretty fucking close, that general blob under Biden has decided that it's reorienting away from like, uh, like Trumpist drain the swamp rhetoric. It's reorienting away from like proud boy type of stuff towards a different area of culture war because it sees weak points where it can hit this is the next thing on the menu for it. This is what it thinks will be politically nutritious to its cause. And they're trying to eat you.
1: Yeah. One of the ways I think about stuff when I'm trying to understand what's going to happen or or make predictions is both the the kind of like slime mold metaphor, which I think makes a lot of sense uh, in terms of figuring out like where these rewards will be coming from. And this sort of As M says, it's vague, there's no specific one leader, and therefore you have to think of it in terms of this almost uh, system level uh, in order to be able to figure out what's happening. In the UK, for example, if you want to predict Tory policy, you literally just have to think of a selfish kleptocrat and that and that and that governs everything that they do Uh, the uk is much more openly kleptocratic than the us is and also we don't we're not driven quite so much by by war hawking and and things like that but i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't quite
0: say that we're more openly kleptocratic it's just that their kleptocracy has been like so institutionalized that it's simply a legal component of of how government procurement works whereas here we're still we're still like slightly crimey about it
1: Yeah, I guess we're more, we're more ghostly kleptocratic. Yeah,
0: yeah, we do, we do it in a sort of like slightly uh, more distasteful way. Whereas over there you actually negotiate over
1: it in committee meetings. True. Um, I guess the point I'm making is that like, I mean that's relevant in the sense that over here, because it's not part of the legal component, you have to think of it in terms of backroom deals, literal backroom deals, rather than it being, you know, openly part of negotiations. Um, but if you if you want to if you want to figure out where things are going, you just have to sort of think of these simple conditions rather than trying to, you know, profile the next fucking transphobe. Like we do not need to know the rich internal lives of of um, people like Marjorie Taylor Green. We just need to think about uh these systems and what they will reward and what they will punish and think about that specifically in the context of the biden administration and what its priorities are which we all know uh and are all very transparent
0: yeah as biden said nothing will fundamentally change
1: oh well i do i do hope he gets really i i I do really hope he uses his special relationship to fuck boris over regarding ireland stuff though that would be that would be a fun change
0: Oh God! Yes, can you imagine? But for now, um, yeah, that wraps up our, our strategic analysis of how the the transphobic institutional blob is going to conduct its
1: attack. Um, we we we've spoken about this in other episodes, and we're not just making references to our other episodes to get you to listen to them. Uh, <laughs> although technically we are, it's it's more that like this stuff has taken a lot of kind of conversation and a lot of watching things develop over many, many months to come to this conclusion on. So if anything we say seems a little bit shorthand or incomprehensible, I genuinely do recommend that you listen to you know my podcast um, for, for more detail because this stuff is quite complex um, when you're first getting your head around it. But once you do, all of this stuff starts uh, falling into place and, and becomes very clear. Section four. call to arms so because these attacks come from a range of converging forces and directions leftists need to think about how these threats are constituted in each environment local state national hyperlocal etc as we've said, we're basically looking at a headless alliance. Even if all the bits of the beast don't agree with or coordinate with each other, the efforts are ultimately directed at this one center, which is maintaining hegemony over society via the means of violent control over marginalized bodies, which includes trans people specifically, but but not uniquely. So we're gonna look at some counter strategies for this, this terrible aim. So
0: these counter strategies are largely based on our experience of anti-fascism. And our experience of like mutual aid organizing again this is going to be stuff that's familiar to a lot of american listeners and we're not trying to teach our grandmothers to suck eggs or anything like that we're just laying this out so that for those of you who aren't familiar with this stuff there is some kind of framework for explaining how you need to combat this general attack you need intelligence about your opponents uh, you need to look at how existing anti-fascist networks in the us and the uk gather information about right-wing agitators and right-wing organizations. You essentially need to do what's called open source investigation. Now, open source investigation has existed for a significant period of time um, and it's a generalized online practice of doing like grassroots citizen journalism type investigation of things that are secret and possibly clandestine but where nevertheless, information exists about them on the net somewhere to find. Now, there's various different online resources for this, and I'm going to link those online, online resources both in our show notes on our like Podbean account and in the Twitter thread where we, when we post this up. But as some general examples, the kinds of things that you will need to learn how to do is stuff like geolocation from photographs. Um, there's various different guides on websites such as the Bellingcat website. And you're also gonna to need to learn how to do kind of like network mapping. Um, so on the ground, information has been very inf- has been very useful for us. Like for example, a few months back, I attended some of the like anti-lockdown demos, and you know it was notable to see an emergence of QAnon and transphobic kind of narratives on placards. There, that's very very basic intelligence gathering, um, and it because it's basic and because it doesn't require you to develop a super spy skill set, that means that you can actually use it if you're very new. Specifically, on-the-ground intelligence gathering is a brilliant thing to get, to get cis comrades to do. Uh, the reason for this is that, A, they're not going to get clobbered to death if they end up in the middle of an actual fascist rally, and B, they're not going to get sussed out if they're in the middle of a slightly more generic transphobic movement, although they don't have to be the only people doing it. That is a tactical decision that you and your comrades are going to have to make in your specific groups. The reason why it's useful is that if you can get information on particular people being at particular events, then you can begin to kind of like create networks and maps of who is talking to who, who attends different kinds of actions, who will focus on doing different kinds of things at different kinds of events, who is a speaker at a conference versus who is the ringleader of a street attack. This kind of information is really critical for anti-fascism. Another area that I've just mentioned is, is geolocation. Now. This relates to essentially photography and imagery analysis. Um, fascists, uh, the live stream guys, they love to post loads of material online and that material is a gold mine. Um, radicals will often say stuff like, don't, don't go to a protest without a mask on. And obviously nobody's gonna be doing that now. Um, so you're, I assume that you will be wearing a mask when you go out to an action anyway. You certainly should be unless you have an extremely good reason not to. Uh, but the other side tends to do this a lot less for a whole bunch of reasons. This is actually really good because it means that we are much more able to identify who's at particular things. What you need to do is begin to develop a skill set of identifying specific people in specific photographs, connecting them to specific locations at specific times, and then connecting that to any kind of other information you can find in the images that they themselves were broadcasting. If you cast your mind back to the the January uprising, a lot of people were eventually just caught, not even by the feds, but just by random journalists on Twitter because they managed to match them to the locations where major felonies were being committed in the Capitol building from photos that these people themselves had uploaded. Transphobes will do this stuff as well. Transphobes will commit idiotic crimes. They'll do absolutely stupid stuff. They'll take photos of it because they think they're doing the right thing and they think they are like leading a revolution against like an evil cabal of transgender paedophiles and that they need to document all of it because they're heroes. The thing about heroes is that heroes are stupid. Be a supervillain. Track down where the hero lives.
1: Mapping is also very useful um, in terms of the more administrative countering, counter-organizing. So if you are going to be countering uh, ballots, if you're going to be countering local transphobes, uh, you need to know who they're having meetings with, um, not necessarily in a street capacity, but so you know how many people they have on side, how likely they are to be able to pack a meeting, uh, You know how, how many mates they have who can turn up and start having bad faith arguments in your DSA meeting or any other organizational meeting. Mapping is um, <clears throat> very well thought of by many leftists, specifically, kind of syndicalists and, and 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 labor organizers for this very reason and it's really worth doing at basically every level specifically when you're doing counter organizing As someone who's had to counter organize uh, several times against specific people, uh, the way in which I have mapped has often been socially because humans are social creatures and because of the pandemic a lot of this stuff is online and you should really take advantage of that.
0: Particularly when it comes to like the, the organizational and more abstract area of mapping, it will also help you create a sort of theory of the enemy in your specific locale. So if you're dealing with a localized transphobic group Then the more the more you map their interactions with other organizations with local politicians and so on, the more you'll begin to understand how they begin how they make decisions. Um, You can do this with just a couple of friends like me and E, largely just consult with each other and you know. People who I could describe as specialists when we're doing kind of you know intelligence gathering for this and our other anti-fascist activities. You don't need a vast branch of like 20 socialists to pull this stuff off. It can just be you and your five friends on a like a chat server. However, mentioning chat servers, that does bring us on to something else. All of these tactics we've just described can be used against you you do need to have a proper respect for information security and not just do all of this crap on Slack or Discord. Those of you who are already doing antifascism will definitely have Signal downloaded by now. But if this podcast is inspiring you to go and do anything, I would strongly advise, you know, talking to experienced anti-fascists that you already know or activists that you already know, taking their advice on how to do proper, safe and accessible operational security with your digital devices it's important and we don't want you to get hurt.
1: Again uh, I want to stress that there is no trans liberation without sex worker liberation and on that note Groups like Hacking and Hustling have done some really great work with uh, OPSEC um, education for people generally, and it's really worth supporting organisations like this because they've had to deal with very similar issues to the ones that trans people will face. In the UK, Turfs really like to identify uh, prominent trans people or anyone that they really take a disliking to uh, in the same way that uh, Andy Nyo, uh does with leftists. Uh, I know many trans people who, for the crime of existing in the UK, have had their work Places bombarded with calls, uh, anyone working with children needs to be very careful around OPSEC because of these safeguarding kind of concern trolling uh, tactics used. If you, I, I don't mean to scaremonger, but if you kind of in terms of a threat model, uh, specifically if you're a trans person or someone who is going to identify yourself as an ally uh, to trans people. You kind of need to assume that the minute you start talking about this stuff at any moment transphobes could descend on you and try and make your life hell. Now this stuff can be avoided but you do just need to be quite fastidious with it.
0: So mapping is the basic intelligence element of this information should then be fed in through an organizational context whatever that might be whether it's a local political party whether it's a local branch of some other activist organization or radical group or whether it's simply like an affinity group that you organize with depends on whatever your preferred model is but regardless the purpose of the information is to empower you to take action later Now, there's various different actions that you can take, and some of them you will already be familiar with in the context of highly publicized anti-fascist activities over the last five years. So we're not going to go on a big explanation of how to do street protests, because, to be honest, your street protests look a lot more sophisticated and fun than ours do. Um, That's a joke. They look fucking terrifying. But... (laughs) Regardless, there are some things that you should consider that are kind of beyond the street aspect of it or apart from it. So you've got to start thinking about counter-institutional organizing. If you're looking at the local level, there's going to be all this crap about schools. Those of you with children or with social or professional connections to schools or connections to like teachers, trade unions, anything like that, should begin to advocate in the face of this kind of like managed chaos strategy for trans-affirming policies. Uh, Trade unions would be a really good way to start with this because it's a workers' rights issue. And also it's like you can frame it in a progressive way that gets local politicians on side.
1: This is the advantage of clearing out organizations. Once you have done that and you know that people stand with you, you can work on this stuff a lot faster and a lot more efficiently, but not before. Yeah. For example,
0: if you... Let's say you wanted to do this but you had not cleaned house in your organization then you could easily get someone who kind of like pulls out the workerist rhetoric saying that this is a distraction from a genuine workplace struggle in order to just sandbag your proposal now if you've already pushed through this kind of ideological battle in the organization that person will be heavily disempowered and will not be able to pull this reactionary double cross on you you don't want that to happen because it'll be annoying and it will screw you over it'll be a monkey wrench And we want to monkey wrench the capitalists, not each other. Anyway, so trade union organizing would be a really good way to start because then you can link A, the social and cultural aspect of the struggle back to the class aspect, which means that it much more falls into the court of really agitational activism, which is where our main strength lies. And accordingly, those of you who are in like large leftist organizations like the DSA, uh, you know, For the People and other Marxist center aff- affiliates, local organizing such as like, uh, like Philly Socialists, Philly and Omaha and Nebraska also have very strong radical tenants unions, things like this. Organizations like this are really good blueprints and people who are in them should focus on specifically turning at least a portion of organizational attention towards this issue. Uh, This, yeah, as I said earlier, this will include professional organizations like unions. But the point of this is that this can kind of be combined into something that is roughly similar to what leftists call a dual power strategy. Uh, And this is something that kind of combines independent centers of power that are not under the control of state apparatus with uh, like a um, a highly radical political program in order to create a generalized independent movement. That can counterattack against the state whilst also creating its own infrastructure, which means that the state has less of a monopoly on the infrastructure that you require to survive. This will be particularly important to trans people.
1: It's also very important uh, to agitate in these spheres specifically because the US, unlike the UK, doesn't have the same worker protections, doesn't have the same housing protections, and doesn't have the same healthcare protections. Although we, you know, in practice, don't enjoy great workplace rights, great healthcare rights, and great housing rights, we do have a legal framework, uh, and and unfortunately, a state-reliant framework that you guys don't have. Now, you can see this as an opportunity to create your own, as Em said, and create dual power that is independent of the state. Um, It does take extra work, but the rewards definitely are worth it.
0: Anti-fascist groups in the Pacific Northwest and around D.C. and Virginia are already extremely well established. And they're the, like the, the street battles over the last five years have meant that over in the States, you guys all have an absolutely incredible repertoire of experience and skills for dealing with this kind of stuff. Start prioritizing a section of that kind of general skill set and general like reserve army of excellent anti-fascists towards looking at how to deal with this. It will help you deal with QAnon
1: it'll it's like the um the apocryphal quote about an army marching on their stomachs behind every kind of bombastic leftist action there are people providing um you know medic uh you know street medicare people providing like busing people in people uh who have informational networks people who are providing emotional support these are all things which are generally good to have and shore up as leftists they're also things that are really relevant to trans people specifically like if you are an american trans person listening to this i'm sure you Will know um, that there are trans groups uh, where if you need advice on uh, obtaining your shots or uh, finding safe housing, you already have these informal networks, formalizing them and, and kind of radicalizing them and, and, and having these convergences with existing organizations is a good thing. Um, and considering how the right are already doing it, we may as well catch up.
0: Essentially, what you need to do, the general rule of thumb, is to play to your strengths Build power there and then apply that power against the center of gravity in the enemy organization.
1: So, like I said, if you have um, kind of these informal connections or if you're in actively trans affirming groups. You should work on strengthening your specifically materialist connections and resources so that you can mobilize more effectively to counter state violence. You know, it's it's, it's not helpful if you have a group of trans friends, but you're all burnt out because of course you are. Um, and there's a great organization who has the resources that could help you, but you don't know if they're on your side or not. If you've done this clearinghouse and if you've made these connections, you can have all of these kind of like uh, nodes in your network mobilize when needed and you can all help each other. Moving to Towards this integrated model uh, with nascent abilities just means more power when the cool zone eventually happens, which it is going to happen. You know, Um, as we said earlier, uh, the last few years have really uh, fucked with the neoliberal status quo. And it really is a case of kind of socialism or barbarism at this point. If you don't if you don't build these centers of power, you're going to be totally vulnerable because the state cannot be relied on.
0: Yeah, you've already had one cool zone over there. Uh, We didn't even get any, and I think you all know why that was by now. Anyway, the other reason why we want you to do this is purely selfish. Uh, We kind of need you lot to get your act together so you can do a humanitarian intervention and like get Biden to send over the B-52s to just carpet (laughs) bomb the UK flat. We need you to do like special ops military advisor trips to to, to, like go and give British Antifa loads and loads of fucking um, quote unquote advice to make them much more useful in any kind of tactical confrontation with the far right. Please, please, can you send in NATO we're dying. Anyway, the like the moral of the story between like comparing the UK and the US left is basically that there's a complete gap in our ability to respond to threats. We have very little ability to respond to attacks at the minute. We're like there's some good groups over here that are trying to build it, but because of how badly we got fucked over during like the like the Corbynist reformist wave, um, we just aren't. We just don't have the capacity. You guys do have the capacity, and I would really advocate for you using it. Uh, you know, it's sort of like it's sort of like when two countries decide to adopt different kinds of policies in relation to combating a shared enemy. You essentially have done the equivalent of actually bothering to put some money into your defense establishment, whereas over here we didn't put any money into our defense establishment, and now we've been invaded by like Nazi Germany or whatever. That's kind of what you're looking at and admittedly it's not like the struggle is easy over in the states in many ways it's much worse it's certainly more lethal than in the uk and it certainly looks like it's a lot harder but because it's harder you've had to deal with it in a way that has made you a lot stronger and if you don't maneuver now you're going to be completely screwed and given you clearly have a lot more capacity to maneuver than we do i would really advocate for doing so
1: I'd like to end this with a quote from Harry uh, Josephine Giles, who I quoted earlier. Uh, The reason I'd like to do so is she wrote a very long article, uh, which I do recommend you read, but I will admittedly, you know, say that it's taken me a long time to read it and in chunks. Um, Basically doing a breakdown of the failures of the, of the UK trans liberationary movement. And I think again, like this episode, hopefully it will offer some insight. So Many trans people have invested too much in charities and NGOs and in campaigning for legal rights and symbolic recognition have not invested enough in movement building and in winning resources for trans people. Dominant tactics of political lobbying for rights on the one hand and reactive campaigning against organized transphobia on the other have failed to win either rights or stop transphobia. And so we need better tactics. Ultimately, what I'm saying is build a local trans group wherever you are fight directly and locally for resources for trans people connects those groups in a national movement from the bottom up and center trans liberation you know the best time to plant a tree is 50 years ago and the next best time is now the tree here is gay trans anti-state shit and its fruits are delicious uh so yeah that's 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 my take
0: <laughs> if you're if you're you know if you're a regular listener to this podcast can you please chuck this episode specifically at any like american radicals you know you think might benefit from it we're really worried about what's going over what's going down over there, and um, it's a little bit scary.
1: Yeah, we wanted to get this um, episode out as soon as possible because it has been very clear that all of the uh, transphobic maneuvering and general reactionary maneuvering in America is coming hard and fast. And we, like, as I'm said, we slept on it when it happened to us, it's happening to you faster. We would really like it if you didn't sleep on it. Um, So yeah, please, please do promote this specific episode. It's not even about our podcast. We just want Americans to be forewarned, please. (laughs) Anyway, uh, we will see you next time. Goodbye.
0: Yeah. Bye everybody.
1: And do special ops military advisor trips to make British anti-Farimola useful, uh, <laughs> which is like something that I think is a concept that would be nice to keep to yes, keep in yes, the we episode. Should, we, should,
0: we should do that. We
1: should. Do that.